A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I am Kave Hoda. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I am the host of this little medical podcast. Joining me as my co-host today, very special co-host, an old friend, um, bandmate, uh, one of my oldest friends, actually, I think. Uh, How long have we known each other? Oh my God. I don't know. Almost 30 years? It'll 20. be like 30 years in like a couple of years, I think. Holy hell. Holy hell. Okay. We have producer Nadim. Nadim, thank you so much for, for coming and joining me today. Always a pleasure. Although I guess it's only been a couple of times before. I beg you, I plead, I ask at least once every couple of months for you to come on. And once a year at best, I get you to come on. So, I don't know how desperate I sounded on the phone or uh, how pathetic I seemed for you to actually agree, but I'm so glad you did. You know what they say, like, leave them wanting more. So, God damn you, rather... leave them wanting more. <laughs> to, uh, to tell people again in, that haven't listened to the show, people who have listened for a while have heard you before, but if they if they haven't, can you tell people who you are? Are you a doctor? Are you, what are you? No, I'm not a doctor, but I've seen many doctors in my life. You have? Yeah many issues in uh, medical related. But yeah, uh, I am a software engineer by profession. Uh, I am I only know about this show just because Kave and you know we've been so uh, friends for so long. and uh, yeah, just helping you produce since I'm like the technical guy, I guess. You know, it's hilarious, but you know, since I've known you for so long, people will ask me, they'll be like, so what does Nadim do? And I have <laughs> no idea. I don't know. Even, I have no idea. I just tell them it's something with computers. I don't know right. what you do. I don't understand it. Part of that's on me, but part of that's on you because you've never explained to me what it is you do. Can so, you? Um, yeah, can I? So basically, I am a computer programmer. I set a computer typing code. Uh, JavaScript is what I do these days, but in the past, it's been other things, Java, C Sharp, C++, all sorts of stuff like that. Not that means anything, but uh, basically, no, say, wait, wait, say no, you no, log no, into does, a website. Wait, wait yeah. hold on a second. Does that mean like you're sort of, because I'm I'm yeah. like a troglodyte here. Yeah. Does that mean that like you can speak like different languages sort of? Like, is there like different coding languages and you, this, yeah. the fact that you can do so many different ones, is that kind of rare? Is it like no, most people don't do that much? No, it's not rare. So when you're a software engineer, it's like they kind of teach you the basics of logic and then you can kind of apply that logic to any programming language. So it's kind of like once you've done it once or twice, you can learn new languages pretty easily. And it's like whatever the application is, like you can learn it if you need to. And that's, that's me. It's like, so over over my career, I've I've had to learn different languages over time. It's hard, but it's doable, you know. Um, do you like it? Oh yeah, I love it. Actually, it's like ever since I was a little kid using computers, like 
I guess this was back on uh, when we used to do like Oregon Trail and computer lab. Like I used to love computers and I learned to program them because my dad like would bring me programming books. And then it's like went to high school, did computer science, AP computer science, loved it, went to college. And I was like, you know, what? I think I could make this my career. And then I wow. did. And wow. it's like, I love coding. It's like, I love the act aspect of seeing something I created on the screen and then other people using it and getting like delight from it. Delight. Do they get yes. the light from your coding? Uh, so like, I don't know. I, I hope so. It's like they'll use something that I made and think it looked awesome or they uh. think it was usable or they, you know, I hope that's delight. Okay. I think, I think I have it. I mean, next time I have you on, I'm going to be asking you again to explain it to me, but yeah, yeah. I think you did a pretty good job this time. So you could just repeat what you said. I think I got that more for, or less. For sure. So you're not a medical person, but you've been helping me with the show because you're just a, an amazing guy um, and an old friend. So you, you feel like obliged to help me. Um, so uh, have you, I mean, presumably you listened to a little bit of the show. <laughs> have you, what have you gotten, if anything, from this? Do you feel like you have a better sense of the world of medicine? Do you feel like some science topics seem a little bit more understandable to you? Have you gotten anything from this? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, one... Uh, as like you said, the world of medicine is much more vast. The type of doctors, the type of problems is much more vast than I ever imagined. That's that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect is uh, do doctors can be funny, which mm. I I only knew you as a doctor being funny, but I just thought that was because you were funny. But it's like mm. doctors are funny. They're real people, you know, mm -hmm. they yeah, but you're but you're coming from the world of like software engineers, so your expectations are really <laughs> low. <laughs> Probably no, but I guess the way I'm coming from is like as a patient, I see doctors as these very serious authority figures. Oh. and so then when I see this show and listen to this show, it's like they're much. All the doctors are very real people, mm -hmm. you know, very funny. Mm -hmm. very, you know, they have lives, they have hobbies, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. And then that's sort of what I've been hoping to do. How how have you? Because you're my age old um <laughs> how how are you uh trying to stay healthy at this point in your life how's that going for you how's that uh how is approaching maintaining your health and fitness at this point in in your life so it's like it's one of those things where it's like always on my mind like i'm constantly trying to eat healthy i'm constantly trying to do exercise but i'm also constantly failing at doing those things consistently yeah. So it's like part of it is my age, but part of it is because I used to be really healthy. I got into a health kick like maybe 10 years ago, working yeah. out and eating right. And I lost a bunch of weight and I know what it's like to feel good. Good. Yeah. And yeah. it's like now I'm always trying to get back there, but I'm always just yeah. too tired having yeah. kids, having a job, all that stuff, you know, yeah. it just yeah. gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, at this point, I don't, I think you're like me and, and we talked about this on the show a lot. When we talk about like being healthy, it's not necessarily about losing weight, but I mean, oftentimes that goes with it, but what we're talking about is being like able to do the things physically we want to do, you know, being able to like, I have like that. I have like the dad strength now where I can carry like a couple kids and maybe a piece of luggage and like four pieces of like Safeway, like, you know, yeah. grocery bags and that sort of thing at one time. And I have that dad strength now, but I don't have like that, you know, the, like I, if, if I were to go try to play a full court game of basketball, like we used to do in college, I would just be a wreck, a winded wreck after the first like minute or so. For sure. So it's like this, these days, it's my goal is to just be slightly better than my kids. At sports, mm. oh, at yeah. some point that will change. But it's yeah. like that—that's where where I, you know, instead of falling on the court, you know, full court, like you said, and trying to win yeah. there, it's like, yeah, you know, rejecting my son when he shoots the shoots the shot, and that's yeah. that's where I get my joy. That that should be. He is, of course, like three foot four at this point. Yeah, exactly. yes, yeah, yeah. Still, <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the. Let me see. I got a lot of things I appreciate about you. You know what I appreciate about you? I appreciate that when we used to play in a band together and you got all your like free drink coupons, you always gave them to me because you never drank. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate uh, how uh, willing you are to engage in things that are, are not necessarily in your comfort level. Uh, I mean, from doing a medical podcast right. to uh, playing a punk rock show or, or right. whatever it is that we would do. So um, very, very uh, open and engaging 
guy who lives in the moment and is one of the most brutally honest people I've ever met in my life, which is oftentimes a source of great aggravation, but <laughs> is is so refreshing at the same time that you're so honest. So I, I want you to know that I appreciate you, buddy. Oh, thank you. But I, I also want to say it's like, I don't think I would be doing a lot of these things without you. Like, I would never have been in a band playing punk rock shows, you know, getting out there if it wasn't for you. Well, you're also, so like good the at podcast it. and stuff like that. So well, you're a natural at it. You, you look so good on stage. Ooh, mm, oh, I, don't know. I, look, I looked at some of the pictures of you from a little while back. <laughs> tasty, tasty treats. <laughs> I, I never felt as comfortable as you looked on stage. I can just say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember there was times when people would come watch us like doctors from like attendings? We would get like my my bosses like to come watch us and they would be like, oh, what a weird persona you have on stage. That's so wild. And we were like, yeah, that's really who I am, though. <laughs> like, what you're getting at the hospital may not be necessarily uh, the full package. I think I'm a lot more earnestly myself now. I feel like I'm I'm very openly who I am at work as well. So I, I don't think I I put on um, I don't think I code switch or anything like that now, which is yeah. which is nice. It's a refreshing thing about being old. You don't feel the need to do that so much, you know. DGAF now, right? What's that? DGAF. What is that? Don't give oh, a fuck. Oh, don't give a fuck. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not cool enough to know shit like that. Anyways, okay, very good. So we're going to talk to two people about rare diseases. Rare diseases. You ever given any thought to rare diseases, Nadim? Uh, you no, kind of focus on the big ones, the big major ones, but you don't care I'm... about other people, the lesser yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. <laughs> we're going to talk, talk about... We're going to talk about rare diseases when we come back and the challenges that both the doctors and the patients face in managing them. Stay tuned. And we're back. We have some really impressive guest today. Um, let's start by introducing Megan. Megan Halley? Haley? Rhymes with Valley. Halley rhymes with Valley. Very good. Very good. Can I call you Megan? You may, please. Okay, very good. Uh, you are a PhD, a medical anthropologist, and an ethicist at Stanford. Is that correct? That is correct. And what, can you tell me a little bit about what you study and, and what your focus, your interest is? Yeah. So I... Um... Uh, I have only been at Stanford for a couple of years, um, uh, and I have the the great privilege of having a grant from the National Human Genome Research Institute to study ethical issues related to how we assess the value of new genomic technologies. So how do we decide if, if and when we should pay for sequencing in our healthcare system, um, exome or genome sequencing? How do we incorporate these super expensive new gene therapies into our healthcare system? So I, I get to work with people who are physicians, of course, but also health economists, um, you know, more like epidemiologists and, and measurement people, um, really interdisciplinary group. Um, and then we do a lot of intellectual gymnastics to try to like figure out some answers to these really sticky questions um, that are really at the intersection of healthcare, health policy and ethics. Oh, my God. So you're like really smart. You're like not doctor smart. You're like real smart. <laughs> That's... Uh I am just, honestly, I, well, so I got into this because I'm a mom of a rare disease kid. So most of the time I have like this crippling um, imposter syndrome because, you know, I don't want anybody to figure out that really I'm just in it for this really passionate reason, but um, it, it makes it, it makes it that much more interesting. So yeah, well, that makes you a lot more like doctors than you think. Yeah, no, actually, I, I, I have seen that. It's, it's interesting when you really dig into it, every bit, it's, it's interesting often you find people have a really personal connection to what they study. You kind of have to, it takes so much time and energy. Like, yeah, you gotta yeah, really yeah. love it. Do you mind if I ask you uh, what the, the illness is that you're, or the disease? Yeah. So actually my son, um, so he was born with multiple complex um, medical conditions and it was actually after like lots of being told that we had struck by been struck by lightning multiple times that we were referred to the undiagnosed diseases network. So like he has biliary atresia, he has a rare form of um, optic neuropathy. He has, he had a stroke when he was almost two, like none oh, wow. of the pieces fit together. And so he's currently in this big research program that 
where they think that he essentially has some sort of un underlying genetic condition that is currently beyond the limits of medical knowledge. So super fascinating, um, but he's a medical mystery to be sure. Oh man. Yeah. Nobody ever wants to be the fascinating or interesting patient <laughs> no, or no. the the parent of one. So, I mean, what you're doing, what you're going through, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm very impressed by, by what you've done so far in, in working with this and, and, and how, um, how tough that's got to be. I, I can only imagine. Yeah. It's, it's been quite a journey. And I, before I, before I actually left my job, um, when my son was born, I was a medical anthropologist studying medical decision-making and studying the healthcare system from a, a social science perspective. And it's really a very different thing to really be in the trenches doing it every day, um, with your yeah. family member. So I, I really think it's, it, I, I learned more from, you know, I've learned more from being Philip's mom than I ever did as an academic. Um, but I'm trying to merge the two and and hopefully do some good with it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Also joining us, we have Juliet Imam Ali uh, at MD PhD at USC, correct? Yes. And can I call you Juliet? Yes, absolutely. Did, did I get the last name correctly? Yeah. Close. Okay. 99%. Yeah, perfect. Uh, mm, damn it. Okay, say it again for me. Imamali. Imamali. Nadim, can you say it? You can say it better than me, right? Imamali. Yeah, God, he said it better than me, didn't he? It's pretty good. He did. Okay, very good. And you also study a relatively rare disease, one that um, is near and dear to my heart because I also uh, work with this patient population and I find this. Uh, patient population to be uh, awesome. And I really, one of my favorite groups of people to work with. Can you tell us a little bit about what you uh, study and what you treat? So I'm a transplant surgeon. I do kidney and liver transplants in adults and children. So I'm also at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And uh, my research lab is focused on studying the immune microenvironment of the liver. So for transplantation, we study things like rejection. But in my clinical practice, um, we see all sorts of different kinds of liver disease. And one of them that I learned about uh, early in my career here in 2017 was that these children born with single ventricle um, physiology and hearts like hypoplastic left heart undergo a series of operations by the heart surgeons that allow them to survive into adulthood. And the final stage of that is something called the Fontan procedure. And so those children, when they get that procedure, can now you know, expect to reach an adulthood. But by changing the physiology there, we've realized sort of in the last 10 years or so that it causes uh, irreversible damage to the liver in almost every single patient. And so now in my practice, we have this population of very medically complicated folks who might need a heart and a liver transplant simultaneously and trying to figure out um, when we should transplant them, whether they need a heart alone or a combined heart liver transplant, how do we monitor their liver disease? What is their risk for developing liver cancer? All of those things are new on the frontier because this disease was created inadvertently by the medical profession. It's called Fontan associated liver disease. And it's funny because there are these problems where it seems like we're replacing one serious problem with another. Um, and, and not to down, I don't want you to downplay your contribution to this. This is a very, this is a difficult topic to, to treat and cover because there isn't a ton of information out there about it. And so for myself, I, like I said, I, I have a patient population with this Fontan associated liver disease that, I follow pretty closely and there isn't that much information out there and your paper um, on it is one of the best resources that I've found in terms of uh, following it. So, I mean, I want to make it clear to people that, you know, you've, you've contributed pretty significantly to this, this topic in this field. Um, so let, let's talk about rare diseases. Let me, let me start by asking Nadim a question. Nadim, what, what would you consider to be a rare disease? What do you think is a rare disease yeah i was just sitting here thinking it's like i don't even know what the definition of a rare disease like if i have heard of it does that mean it's not rare <laughs> me the non-medical professional what's the rarest disease you can think of that you've heard of i'm curious no i can't think of anything yeah right right so it's, it's funny maybe you guys can help me with this i'm sure you you can but i didn't come across like a single like widely accepted definition I mean, generally, this means there's a disease that's rare enough that there's a, a lack of large market support enough to really get the, uh, you know, what we would hope in terms of resources uh, for it. 
Um, but there was the U.S. Rare Disease Act in 2002, and that qualified it as fewer than 200,000 people in the U.S. having it. Does that sound about right to you guys? Yeah, yeah. The, from a policy perspective, the definition is is about less than one, um, less than 200,000 in the U.S. It, the definition varies, though, across the world. So it's different in Europe. It's different in Australia. It's different all over the world. We can't even really get on the same page about exactly what the definition is. Um, but I think to your point about like if you if you can't think of a disease that it must be rare i mean a lot of people don't realize that cystic fibrosis qualifies as a rare disease sickle cell disease qualifies as a rare disease lou gehrig's disease als qualifies as a rare disease so there's actually a really huge spectrum within rare mm. um and only a growing one growing one the more sequencing we do and the more of these kind of n of one ultra ultra sometimes people call them nano rare diseases um are discovered it does seem like a large proportion of these are genetic in nature. I, I read up to about 80% are presumed to be genetic. Is that, does that seem right in your uh, study of this as well? Yes. Yeah, that's that's what, that's where the data, well, that's the, um, I would even go ahead and call the conventional wisdom. Some people would probably disagree with me, but we don't actually track the epidemiology of rare diseases in the United States at all. And so we don't really have a good system for for confirming whether that's true. Um, certainly, as we do more sequencing, we're realizing that more diseases that were previously kind of an unknown etiology do have some sort of a genetic basis. But, um, and, and so yes, you'll see that's that's the most common number I see thrown around is 70 or 80%. Um, but the reality is we just don't have great data to really like pin that down more specifically. Yeah. So Juliet, let me ask you, you know, the disease you study, Fontan's associated liver disease, is not uh, a genetic one uh, necessarily. It comes after this surgery, um, but it's some of the same issues apply. What are the major challenges you come across in trying to manage these patients and learn about these patients? Well, because this is a disease that was created by doctors. Uh, sorry, my dog's having a dream next to us. <laughs> Um, but uh, because this is a disease that was created by doctors, uh, we don't have codes for it in the ways that we would normally track in big data, which is a good way to study rare diseases. So there's no ICD codes for Fontan-associated liver disease. Um, and there's not even a code for us in our transplant registry to use to study these patients that do get transplanted. And so it's very difficult to understand the actual burden of disease and epidemiology outside of a single center. And so we actually published a paper last year um, where we took California level registry data um, because the, the problem with this um, patient population as an example is that the surgeries are all done before age five, but the disease manifests mostly in young adulthood. And so the way that we study patient populations, oftentimes the data sets don't include both children and adults and have long-term outcomes. But in California, we have something called the HCAI data um, which used to be called the OSHPOD data, and it tracks all hospital admissions in the state um, through the course of your lifetime. And it's about 10% of the U.S. population. And so we were able to capture the patients who had the Fontan procedure by the procedure code and then track them through their lifetime to look at their overall survival. And then we used a bunch of chronic liver disease codes as a kind of a surrogate for Fontan associated liver disease and identified that even using that, which underestimates the burden of disease, at least half of the, the you know patient population by the age of 25 had a chronic liver disease code. And so we kind of had to use this roundabout way to even study them epidemiologically because we have no codes to this day to track them in our hospital records. So what it sounds like is you have to be creative in order to 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 learn more about this and to produce the scientific like papers that we need for this, right? So that's that's the one piece of it because often we you know we like to be very evidence based in medicine and so you know in order to study a rare disease outside of a single center you have to have some sort of registry data which is difficult. And the other unique thing about this disease is that it's been mostly managed in congenital cardiac programs, a very subspecialized area that doesn't interact with the liver world very much. 
And so in my field to this day, I often say when I talk about this disease, I'm like the canary in the coal mine because every single one of these patients essentially will have chronic liver disease and very few of my colleagues ever see them. And there's more Fontans being performed every year than there are children being born with biliary atresia, which is the leading indication for liver transplant in children. And when I tell that to people who do pediatric liver transplant, they sort of pause for a minute because they don't see these patients out there. So it's kind of twofold. Um, there's a lack of an awareness and there's a difficult time studying them. Megan, you know, you 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 talked about sort of the, the range of rare diseases and kind of getting to Juliet's point, one of the major issues is that. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So many of them just don't have that recognition. Lou Gehrig's disease, we know. Um, but you know, what, what is it that makes one of these rare diseases, a household name and, and one, something like Fontan's associated liver disease, which is a disease that even gastroenterologists and hepatologists aren't really aware of. What's the, what's the difference? Well, I, I'm really glad that Juliet mentioned the, the ICD code issue, cause that's a huge issue for for most rare diseases and they're trying to do whatever I'm not a physician. So whatever ICD update they're doing now, they're trying to make it better. And the signs point to that, to, you know, having better data on that, but that's a huge issue. But um, I think one of the things that I've, I've written about a little bit with colleagues of mine is, is exactly that question of which rare disease gets, gets a cure, which rare disease gets a study. Um, And, and um, you know, we don't have great, we don't have systematic data on this, but um, there was a really wonderful um, paper that came out in JAMA Network Open a few years ago that looked at um, funding and it compared sickle cell disease and uh, cystic fibrosis. And um, they found that the amount of funding, both public NIH funding, as well as philanthropic funding, as well as papers published and um, drug approvals sought for cystic fibrosis were just orders of magnitude higher than for sickle cell disease, even though sickle cell disease affects three times more people than cystic fibrosis. But for, the, for your listeners who may not be aware, cystic fibrosis predominantly, though not exclusively, affects individuals of European ancestry, white appearing or identifying, whereas sickle cell disease primarily affects individuals of African ancestry. Um, and so one of the things that we do see in the rare disease space is that diseases that either have a champion like Lou Gehrig or um, who, or diseases that um, uh, where there's individuals in that population that have the resources and the education and the skills and the connections, the social capital essentially to really move the, the research forward. That's where we see progress. And it's, that's really, in my opinion, being really amplified in our current rare disease space where we have all of these newly identified very small rare disease populations um and and we just aren't doing we don't have a system for moving rare disease research forward um in an integrated way it's it's really a lot of ground up sort of patient and family advocacy and Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. as an ad hoc sort of system if you will like that really moves certain is going to move certain diseases ahead and leave others behind Right. That's actually funny. You mentioned it when I reached out on Twitter to be like, uh, you know, I'm doing an episode on on rare diseases and um, solicited people to that might have something to say about it. A lot of people, I wasn't able to get everyone on, obviously, 
um, a lot of great um, groups, a lot of people, a lot of literal mom and dads um, putting together organizations and groups for rare diseases that I had not heard of, like mm -hmm. Syngap, for example. Right. right. So it's really, um, it is, it is uh, both, it's one of these like things now where you see like these TikTok videos of like, look how great this is that this like you know the this mom and dad did this to, to for their kid and it's really heart like warming and, and it's lovely but at the same time you're like why should it have to be like that why you know how tired those parents already are like those yeah. parents are already exhausted and caring for a really sick child or family member they're look how tired exhausted. nadim is his kids aren't even <laughs> sick his kids aren't even sick he's exhausted yeah, I, can't I can't even imagine <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I think the equity issues are a systemic issue. And then it's, you know, yes, these do these parents and families do incredible things? Of course they do. But why do they have to? You know, I think that's, that's a question I think we need to continue to ask. And, um, you know, it's interesting, because previously, you know, you started the conversation with, you know, what is a rare disease kind of touching on market, the market, and whether there's kind of commercial incentives to move these diseases forward. Um, you know, that is evolving somewhat um, in the last few years as the science around gene therapies and gene targeted therapies has been evolving. Um, there's been increasing interest in both like within large pharmaceutical companies, as well as in, in the kind of the startup um, uh, world uh, of kind of niche pharmaceuticals. Um, and some of these, some of these companies are actually partnering with patient and family groups um, to do the initial seed work. There are some ethical issues there that I won't go into uh, unless you want me to, but, uh, but yeah, there, there is, go there on. is, go, go on. <laughs> there is, there is some shifting towards new kind of commercial incentives. You know, there's, um, there's a really wonderful ethicist, his name's, um, Matthew McCoy, who's at Penn, who's doing a lot of work around conflicts of interest and this idea of venture capital, um, which is a, um, a, a approach to moving forward therapeutics um, and funding of therapeutics that was really um, pioneered by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which is now a multi-billion dollar foundation. I mean, it, it, I mean, and we're on the verge of a cure for cystic fibrosis. You know, money moves mountains yeah. in many ways. Um, we saw it with COVID. I mean, we got a vaccine right. because we poured the money and the manpower into it. You know, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, it makes exactly. it, it can make it happen. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, then you have these patients and families who are really desperate, you know, scrambling, liquidating their retirements to put money into to invest money sometimes into these drug companies with this hope that they will move a move a move a therapy forward. And I think there are so many issues. The communication isn't necessarily clear with regard to the timeline for when they can expect the benefit or the likelihood of any benefit at all. Um, there's uh, there's this question of um, of who owns the intellectual property. So there was actually a very high profile case just a few months back with Tasha um, Therapeutics where they um, dropped a whole bunch of their disease um, their their um, candidate. Uh, therapies they were working on and um you know for one of them the family patient and family group had invested all of their resources into this and they said basically we're putting this on hold and we own the intellectual property so you can't move it forward either um and so essentially walked away from the patient and family group um mm. and so anyways, you could that's just a few a couple of examples but it, it gets really sticky really quickly but it's also a really exciting time like there's never before been a time where you know, we could have these N of one therapies like you saw, like you see with, um, you know, like we saw with Batten disease and Nielsen out of Tim Yu's group at, at Harvard and, and others. So, so it's, it's exciting, but with exciting things come challenges too. Juliet, do you feel like this is sort of an exciting time to be studying this disease? It's, you're on the forefront of it. I mean, it's frustrating because you don't have a lot of uh, information to, to look at. But at the same time, you're one of the people that's helping move this subject forward and for the first time, really. Um, is it sort of exciting? It's exciting because I, I have a, a surgical kind of personality and how to deal with this. And I want to have a measurable interval increase in how we you know, take care of these patients in the next five years. I don't want to wait 20 years because I think there's too many of them on the horizon. And so 
one tricky thing I've noticed is that um, with this as a rare disease, as submitting this to the NIH um, for R01 funding, you know, is it the Heart Institute? Is it the Liver Disease Institute? Is it, you know, the multidisciplinary institute like NIGMS? And then finding the right study section has also been a challenge because um, you want to get the right audience for the science and they don't even understand this new disease. So I think that's a bit of a, an uphill battle compared to, you know, if I was writing a nice grant about a therapy for type two diabetes, for example. So um, that adds a layer of um, complexity. Um, so, you know, I think I just kind of keep plowing ahead with it and, and reaching out within my community because one of the things, you know, people have a hard time if we're gonna do a heart transplant in a failing Fontan and their liver is, not overtly sick, but is very diseased. We know that from a biopsy. Some people say, well, to use two organs in one patient when that liver could help somebody with end-stage liver failure, is that the right thing to do? When we know that if we do the combined transplant, if you can get them through the operation, they have like almost no rejection in the heart ever, and they can have 20-year perfect outcomes. And these people are in their early 20s, late teens, they're young people, they can have a lifetime ahead of them. Um, and when we have that conversation, you know, I kind of have to bring up that I think the vast majority of these patients never actually get to see a transplant center and have that decision discussed about them because there's not enough places even having this conversation. So the denominator of patients with zero access is more troubling than the concept of a tiny percentage of livers being used in a combined organ transplant. But in that patient, we've invested a lot of resources you know, we're at the finish line, we should give them the best chance for a long-term outcome. But that's my feeling as a transplant surgeon, so. Well, it's it, it's interesting because it's, uh, at first when I started thinking about this subject, I didn't think about the ethical implications of it so much. And it makes sense to me that, you know, uh, Megan, this is a big part of your, your research and your study, because I feel like there are so many ethical, there's so many ethical questions to begin with, with transplant, that there's always you know, we have ethicists that are part of that discussion, you know, very frequently. And it's always important to, to approach it from that perspective. But I mean, even beyond that, the, there's so many questions that this raises. Like, you know, for example, your mom with Megan, with with uh, with someone who, who has a problem that we don't know yet. And if we were to pour enough money into it, we could get that answer, I'm sure at some point in, in our lifetimes, we could get that. But the the question is, how do we make that argument that we got to take the money away from something else that we know we already have an answer to, and we just need the the money to treat? Like how do how does that how do you make that argument, or do you? I don't know. What do you? What you're an ethicist? Tell me. What what, what are we doing? <laughs> Did I mention the intellectual gymnastics? There's a fair amount of that. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and I just want to comment that I the that's really interesting what Juliet mentioned. And it makes me think back to our own experience of trans because my son had a liver transplant for biliary atresia when he was three. And um, and you know, they never brought up the issue at the time that he they thought he had this underlying additional problem. I always I kind of was fearful that it would come up and be a mark against him for a transplant. Um, and actually we ultimately were fortunate to be able to have a living donor liver transplant. But oh, um, great. but yes, we were very fortunate. Um, but uh but I think that's a really, I haven't, there are ethicists who specialize in ethics of liver transplant. I haven't heard, so, I, and I am not one of them, but I am fascinated by the topic and I actually haven't heard heard much on, on that topic. So I mean, now I have some reading to do. Um, what was your question? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so, so, so the argument that a lot of, a lot of folks make in the rare disease space is rare informs common. So, you know, there's, there's, many, many examples we can point to about how research often cystic fibrosis, you know, what drugs that they've developed for that condition have been used to treat other much more common um, lung diseases and other other issues. Um, and so, um, you know, often because rare, um, rare patients have really complex issues that are can be very organ specific, they in the if they really dive into those problems, they can actually find um, dis they uh, discover things that help other people. Um, and so, you know, that's off this kind of scientific spillover argument. Mm -hmm. The the issue the health economists run into is like, we don't measure that very well, right? And that, that's, and it's often very, it's very hard to predict 
what that's going to what that actually is going to mean in terms of dollars and cents. Um, but it, it has historically been a really big challenge in getting research in rare disease funded. I think it's interesting, um, and I actually think it's partly why you know when people talk about rare diseases these days, like there's an, I, th I would argue sometimes an overemphasis on the genetic rare diseases um, as opposed to those that have other causes like the condition Juliet's talking about because um, because everyone's so excited about genetics right now, right? We're just, the technology is just moving yeah. breakneck speed. And like when you have a hammer there, it's a nail and like, let's do all this cool science. And so then you get, you know, all of a sudden we're having these like really, um, you know, huge investments on Diagnosed Diseases Network, aspects of the CSER program, this new uh, Gregor initiative, you know, all of these public dollars through NIH funneled towards undiagnosed rare disease, because if you can solve my son's case or all these other medical mysteries, you actually are learning about the genome and filling in all of these gaps. And, and it, that's really about expanding our knowledge more broadly. Um, and so, so that's often, you know, the argument that folks make, and it, it certainly seems to be playing out at least for some subsets right now, but um, it also, I think, because the excitement is in a particular area, sometimes forgets to, we forget to step back and like remind ourselves that there's a bigger picture here, that mm -hmm. not all rare diseases are in kids, not all rare diseases are genetic. Um, so, so yeah, I do think to kind of chip in, there was a, a paper this last year, I think it was last year, Journal where they use CRISPR sequencing to gene editing basically for sickle cell. And they can take a patient with sickle cell disease and make them more like sickle cell trait without the need for a bone marrow transplant. And being able to do gene editing like that in a clinical study and using sickle cell as a very kind of clean and well understood genetic disease with a very measurable clinical outcome has the potential for that spillover effect that you're talking about with all sorts of other genetic type of diseases that we have in that you know space. So I, I think that's a very exciting kind of use of rare disease research to kind of have a potential broader impact. Let me ask you guys uh, a question. I'll start with you, Juliet. If you have if you're talking to someone that's new in their medical career very early on, what advice do you have for them if they're interested in, in a, a rare disease, something that like Fontan's associated liver disease, what advice do you have for them about how to do that? I think for me, you know, I mentor a lot of students kind of at different stages and of their training, kind of ranging from high school students and onward. I think it's the most important thing is to work on something that you have a passion for and whether that passion comes from your own personal life you know some people when they're coming through their training they had a parent with you know kidney disease and are interested in transplant or if they saw a patient or had a friend in school that had leukemia or something like that that human connection can really inspire people and give them a lot of motivation and so if they have an interest and a passion for something even if it's a rare disease i say go for it because there's there's more than we can study. Even with all the people doing research right now, there's we need good people doing good research, even if it's in a rare disease, especially if it's in a rare disease. And, and Megan, what what advice do you have for people that are interested in, the, in this field about, or actually let me ask you this, what advice do you have for people that aren't medical professionals that are confronted with a a new uh, something that we don't have a great uh, description of or a definition of, what what advice do you have for them about organizing or getting involved or finding the right people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and fortunately, um, there are a number of really wonderful, effective umbrella organizations out there for rare disease. That a lot of the work that they do is help people find find their tribe is kind of the, the tagline people use or find their community. So the National Organization of Rare Diseases has been around for decades now. Um, they have a really great um, uh, library of, of rare disease organizations that that is right on their website, contact information um, through the NIH Office of Rare Disease. There's a, um, the they have, it's called GARD. I can't remember what it stands for at this exact moment, but um, but they have a, they have a library as well. There's Global Genes. There's the Every Life Foundation, which does a lot of advocacy. Um, there and and um, also, frankly, people find each other on Facebook. 
(laughs) Facebook is where people find each other. You'll be amazed. Like people will, the number of times I've heard stories of families who just posted, put put something up on Facebook. This is our mutation. Often the diseases don't even have a name. Um, Mm -hmm. And and someone comes and finds them. Um, there are also more kind of formal programs like um, My Gene 2 is a program. If you're working with a healthcare team, there's like a gene matcher or um, matchmaker exchange. So that's all more on the pre-diagnosis side of things. But um, but there are a lot of resources out there, increasingly so. Um, and and social the social media is that's you know it has a lot of drawbacks, but um, it certainly has been. Um, uh, something the rare disease community has relied on heavily for forming forming community. Yeah, I mean, all the damage that Facebook has caused over the years, if nothing else, this should be used. In, in, and I do, you're right, I do see that. I do see people are in groups and stuff like that. And I think that's, uh, I think it'd be great if it gets continued to be used like that. And that's the best possible outcome of it. Um, all right, uh, that I, was- Add one more thing. Please. I can say one of the the best ways that patients and families can have an impact is if they have a strong relationship with one of their providers, and that provider is doing research. You can make a direct donation to somebody's research group uh, through the hospital or the university, and they don't have to be donations. Um, but those kind of undesignated funds can give researchers the opportunity to do high risk, you know, preliminary data experiments that. Um, can lead to bigger funding from the NIH and other things and and really allow you to move something forward. And we've been fortunate to have some kind of intervention like that. Um, and I know other people in my field have really benefited from patients who are really invested in some of the clinicians that they work with directly. So um, that's a, another great opportunity. And doctors, I think, have a hard time asking. Um, but if people are interested, it's a, it's a good way to kind of have a connection with, with the disease and with your provider. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. We 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 never ask. We're not good at it at all. Uh, we're all people pleasers. It's weird to us. I, I get it. Um, uh, okay, thank you guys so much. That was really enlightening. Um, let's get some plugs in. Let's. Is there uh, if you have a particular website or if you guys have a social media place you want me to direct people to? Let's let's hear it. Uh, Megan, uh, what would you like to plug? Oh my gosh, I'm terrible at this sort of thing. Um, I I sometimes check my Twitter. I think I like missed your first three messages. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, I publish a lot in academic literature, so um, that's that's mostly where you'll find me is is in boring places like that. Um, I'm trying to do more of this type of stuff because I think my I think the the work that I do, you know, can it's it's something that other people should be everybody can be thinking about. Um, and so uh, so. I, I, and I just started in this area, so um, I'm not sure I even have a great, I clearly don't have a great elevator speech yet, but uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be working on that. <laughs> don't worry. This, we're a good starter podcast. You'll, you'll be on to bigger and better things later. Juliet, uh, anything you'd like to plug? Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so people can find me there. I think you found me there. Um, I have a link to my lab you know, website and our clinical program and so on there. And I'm pretty responsive to email too. I get a lot of questions about Fontan cases from around the world, believe it or not. Um, and some of the decision making, so I'm always happy to chat offline with people in that space. Yeah. What, so what's your handle? What's your Twitter handle? At Dr. Imamali. I know my last name is a problem, but... <laughs> Can you just spell it? I'll link it, obviously, when we post it, but yeah, can you spell it for people? E, yeah, E-M-A-M-A-U-L-L-E-E. Fantastic. And Nadim, I always thank you uh, at the end of the episodes, but you're actually here this time. So thanks, buddy. Thanks for for uh, for everything you do. I appreciate it. Anything you want to plug? No, I don't have any public social media, so nothing I want to plug. you want to plug the Kings maybe getting to the second round of the playoffs? I would be happy if they just got to the playoffs. So. Fair enough. Okay. I'm a long-suffering fan, yeah. Your mouth to God's ears. Okay. Thank you all so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, keep doing such amazing work. I really I really appreciate what you guys do. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thank so you much. so much. Nice to meet you all. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees.
Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.